Hello and welcome to Pause Pop, positively pop culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm K.W. Taylor. And I'm Carrie Gessner. This week, we're interviewing author K.P. Kulski about her new book, Fairest Flesh. Yes, and this was a really fun talk, so we will get right to it. All right, welcome. We are very excited to have author K.P. Kolsky with us today. K.P., why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi. Well, first, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I am an uh, author of an upcoming novel that's going to be released in December called Ferris Flesh, and it's kind of a mashup between Snow White and Elizabeth Bathory. So for me, very I'm, cool. uh, <laughs> I'm a veteran of two branches of the military, the Air Force and the Navy. I've got two little kids who are in school. Of course, they're not actually physically in school right now. So with, <laughs> with virtual learning, everyone's experiencing. So I was born in Hawaii. I've moved around a lot of different places, seen a lot of different things. But uh, writing has always been my kind of my love, that and history. So I also teach history at a local community college. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> So your book is called Fairest Flesh, and you described it as Snow White meets Elizabeth Bathory. What inspired that particular mashup? You know, it's it's kind of strange. I know a lot of people see Elizabeth Bathory, and they kind of see, like, vampires. And for some reason, for me, it's always been Snow White. Hmm. I really see her, like, her experience is ha- kind of having to deal with in the worst possible way, of course, but with kind of a patriarchal system in which she is very, like, very much a pawn. So I always thought Snow White was an interesting overlay with that story. So for anyone who's not familiar with Elizabeth Bathory, can you just give us a little bit of a of background on her? Because she was a historical figure, and some people just might not know about her. Gotcha. Well, Elizabeth Bathory is probably most infamous for murdering lots and lots of girls. There is a belief that she bathed in the blood of those girls. Unfortunately, as cool as that story is, that's a Victorian creation about her story. But to be honest, her story is much worse. She lived in Hungary. She was a noblewoman in the 16th and 17th centuries and uh, was actually part of an amazingly powerful family, the Bathories, so much that she actually kept her name when she got married. So... But the funny thing is, she got away with it for a long time. And to this day, we have no idea how many girls she tortured and mutilated and murdered. Wow. And it's been a while since I've read about her. But she was doing that to, like, kind of siphon their life essence, right? And, like, keep herself young. That was a Victorian idea, too. Okay. (laughs) No, it's okay. No, that's pretty common to think, though. So... The thing with her is we don't really know. So there's so much you can kind of create about her story. So whether it was because she was murdering because she was jealous or was trying to stay young by utilizing some sort of life force, because there is some kind of possibility she was into witchcraft or people who who utilize witchcraft. As a possibility, she didn't, she was just angry and it was a way to get out her anger. No one really fully knows. Yeah. Well, I can sympathize with the victorians who who kind of saw the story of of someone who who killed without much of a reasoning behind it if you know or if there was one we weren't aware so sort of assigning a reason to it because that makes me uncomfortable (laughs) (laughs) 
it does. And I think that's the thing with, with Elizabeth Bathory is she was so much worse than our typical idea of her bathing in blood of young girls. She was horrendous to those girls. I mean, the, the mutilations she did to them were nightmare fuel. So I think it is more comforting to at least know why, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, in the Victorian era, too, I think there was that that is a turn toward a very specific kind of sexism and to imagine a woman being violent. Obviously, it has to be in, in the spirit of some kind of vanity, right? Rather than yeah. that she's just, you know, mentally ill or, or sociopathic, that it's hard to imagine a woman who the Victorians would, would perceive as genteel, especially doing these horrific things just because she felt like it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, you know, the Victorians at the same time were so fascinated with these morbid things. So <laughs> to have this kind of meeting and a clash between the two, yeah, it totally makes sense why they would have that kind of, you know, mythology concerning her. Mm -hmm. So now that we've gotten down that bloody road, <laughs> we, we generally think of Snow White as a, a children's tale, even though there are some versions that can get very horrific as well. So how do you mash those two things up? Well, so for me, I see the story of Snow White as kind of this life cycle thing. So kind of especially when we take it from like Wolf's beauty myth idea. So if you have Snow White, who's kind of the young version, right? And the evil queen is like, she's jealous because Snow White's more beautiful than her and she wants to be beautiful, the most beautiful. So the idea that she needs to eliminate that is so funny to me because in a lot of ways, the evil queen is the culmination of Snow White's life. To me, Snow White was her in the past and the evil queen is Snow White's future, you know? So I really want to overlay that with Elizabeth Bathory because we've got this situation of who, who was by all accounts herself considered very graceful and educated and beautiful in her day to suddenly doing these really violent things, you know, as it appears to either, you know, because she was jealous or was stressed, but either way, she was victimizing always young girls. So I wanted to kind of explore why with that understanding of Snow White and the Evil Queen kind of being a life cycle. That sounds really cool. Thanks. Yeah, and especially given that Snow White in some of our some of our popular conceptions of it includes the element of the Evil Queen deliberately turning herself into a crone, even if it was more of a glamour, a temporary thing, in order to affect her revenge, that you've got an extra life cycle there of the the female archetype. So that's really interesting. Exactly, yeah. That that seems to me like a good segue into feminism as writers and the feminism that we try to inject into our books. So can you just like talk about your approach to that a little bit? In general or specifically with Ferris Flesh? It's up to you. Well, I'd say that I think most of what I write is really what I would classify as feminist horror. I think that horror has a really unique position to express not just the facts, but the feeling, the very feeling of horror at some of the experiences that women go through. And I think with Ferris Flesh, I really want to look at concepts of beauty against kind of concepts of the of a power structure. So I was really exploring, you know, who has that power in that system especially when we're talking about such a, a strict class system of people who are peasantry and who are of noble birth and lower noble birth and higher noble birth. 
and then whether they are a man or a woman, and also as to how they identify. So I think that really looking at that, it, it ends up kind of being a study into how feminism really kind of always existed and how women have ha tried to work within that system and to find success for themselves. That's awesome. So can you talk a little bit about it specifically in Ferris Flesh and how you weave those themes, but also maybe incorporate tropes and turn tr those tropes on their heads? Ooh, tropes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I really wanted to first, I mean, the idea of the glass coffin, you know, mm. and the idea of Snow White specifically, I wanted to have this idea that we, we we're lifting up this one woman as being the most valuable, right? So Snow White is the most valuable because she's the most beautiful. And I felt like if someone was putting her in a glass coffin, you know, there's kind of this weird, sick idea. And I know the original Grimm's, if you think about it, you know, there's the princess coming up and he's, he's kissing this pretty much what he thinks is a dead girl, which is pretty disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I wanted to see how we could take that trope and see where we could actually literally shatter that glass coffin and the same idea of shattering the glass ceiling. Cool. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I loved playing with ideas like that. I think that in the story of Ferris Flesh, we actually focus more on the story of Dorata, which is her witch and her servant, who actually did exist historically, although I merged her a little bit with another character. So on the other hand, Dorata is considered very homely, and she's treated just that way. She's from the lowest peasantry. She's disliked. She has nothing really going for her in, in gaining any sort of power in that system. And how that system requires you to still play that game, and oftentimes against other women. Yeah. And that brings up some interesting issues of class, too, and even, even race, because in I think of the Snow White story as having a lot to do with literal fairness and the fairest one of all. And I know that that term is, is sort of conflated with just beauty, but it's no accident that it's a synonym for whiteness basically oh absolutely right and that whiteness is always like compared as purity and stuff yeah i really i wanted to play with that idea as well because for ferris flesh it's less about the blood and more about the extraction of that blood to create that very very fair pale dead flesh so hmm. who you know who's truly snow white i mean who can truly be snow white maybe the most dead <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that's certainly one of the reasons why Bathory gets conflated with vampirism, because this idea of deathly pallor and, and blood and whatnot, and, and it being in a similar, not identical, but similar era to Vlad Dracul. And, and I think that, I mean, I've read novels that really associate those two figures very, very closely. But there is something weirdly classist, too, about vampirism or any kind of mass extinction, the idea of getting rid of peasantry or or elevating the gentry too yeah and those those vampires are they're absolutely they're usually the supreme beings right they're mm -hmm. so much more important than everyone else especially since they live their lives and they can use people and throw them away it does remind me of a lot of class systems <laughs> yeah unfortunately yeah. so it sounds like a really interesting intersectional themes going on here and attempts to kind of reclaim some feminine narratives from misconceptions and stuff but 
I want to ask if, if you're mostly a fan of horror and you want to read your book on more of a surface level without getting into these deeper themes, is it still a good horror novel? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, um, I mean, at its heart, it's a historical serial killer novel. So, yeah. Okay. yeah. So, you know, if that's something you're really interested in, yes, there's plenty of that experience of, you know, Elizabeth Bathory is hunting down, down women who's going to be her next victim. And what exactly is she going to do to them? Scary. Yeah. I'm not talking a lot because I'm just sitting here like (laughs) creeped out, (laughs) but excited at the same time. So it's not that I'm not a a huge horror fan. It's just that I'm a big scaredy cat. So (laughs) you know what? So am I. That's like the big, like awful secret. Yeah. So, so it's always really funny because I don't, I never sat down to write horror. It's just kind of what came out. So horror kind of chose me. So um, mm. I'm a big scaredy cat, too. And I think that's why I write horror. <laughs> that's really interesting. Well, uh, my question was going to be, as a scaredy cat reader, would your book be okay for me to read? I, I generally do better with gory stuff and horror stuff in books because there's not that immediate visual element. But just from your your opinion, would I be okay reading it? <laughs> okay. Well, it depends if I'm not really into doing a whole lot of gore. There's some level mm. of that, of course, but okay. I really focus more on the psychological aspects. So if, it, if that sort of thing gets under your skin really easily, uh, maybe read during the daytime. That's when I do it. Okay, great. <laughs> as long as it's <laughs> daytime, I'm okay. <laughs> That's a perfect solution. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm here like, oh my gosh, when when can I get this? Because this is this sounds so up my alley. I'm so oh, yeah. so super creepy, and so this just sounds great. I mean, I love I love a good serial killer novel. I've got some of that in my own work, and and I love. I mean, one of my favorite vampire novels is The Historian, and this sounds not identical in any way, but very much in that vein. And oh, I'm just so excited for oh, it. Oh, cool! <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> Now, you say that horror chose you and you weren't really as big of a fan of it. What were you what were you sort of originally setting out to to write when you thought about writing fiction? And let me tell you, I was intending to write fantasy or dark fantasy. I'm mm-hmm. primarily it was a fantasy fan. I mean, things have changed now for me. I'm definitely a horror fan at this point, only during the day. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, a lot a lot of it has to do when you write what is writing doing for you? And for me, I think it's dealing with a lot of difficult things in my life. For some people, it's an escape. And I think for me, you know, I've had kind of a rough childhood and stuff. And I think a lot of that stuff came out every time I write. So, you know, it just depends. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So do you think you're, or right now, you're focusing on horror? Do you have any projects in the works? Slash, do you think in the future, you'd return to fantasy or dark fantasy? Because dark fantasy is not super far removed from horror. No, it isn't. I always felt like dark fantasy was like the horror that's outside your door, you know? And the you know the mm-hmm. scary stuff, I guess I should say, outside your door. Whereas horror is that scary stuff is in your house. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I do have something. In fact, when I worked at Seton Hill, when I worked on my uh, master's degree there that you guys know quite enough about. <laughs> Um, (laughs) so the project i was working on there was more dark fantasy with a touch of horror kind of like sort of pan's labyrinth like so i am returning to that so we'll see what ends up happening as i go through that process because sometimes it turns darker than i even intend to okay so i was under the impression that ferris flesh was your thesis but that's incorrect 
No, it's not. I was so frustrated okay. after the thesis, I had to put that down for a little while. So, and I, I had Vera Slush in my head for a long time. So I thought it was time to give birth to it. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Well, and that's, that leaves an interesting point is that if any, you know, up and coming authors are hearing this, it's not always that one of your first major projects ends up being the first thing that you get published. And I think sometimes that can be frustrating or thinking about setting something aside, but it, it shouldn't. I mean, I think that, you know, if it's something that you're going to return to, that's awesome. Or also sometimes if not, that just is a book that you needed to write in order to, to know what you wanted to work on for kind of your first big piece. You know what I mean? Like we shouldn't mm -hmm. think of a, we shouldn't think of a book that we can't quite finish or, or get where we want it to as a failure because you can always return to it. And I think sometimes yeah. that second pass makes us see things in a better light. Maybe it's the book we weren't ready to write or we weren't at that point in our skill set or craft set or mindset. And that's okay. And when you come back to it, it's going to be all the better for that, that other experience. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think for my thesis, it was where I learned to really finally get those stories out and how to write. So I think everything we, we work on, no matter how it comes out, is part of that process of getting you closer to getting something that you would get published. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As frustrating as it can be, sometimes the element that helps the most in writing is just time and letting it sit for a while and getting some distance and then coming back to it when you're ready. Yes. So. Cool. I agree. Yeah. So since this is sort of a mashup of, of history and, and fiction, did you do that in your thesis novel too? Is that something you do a lot? Or I know you're a big fan of history, you're a history teacher. So how much history do you try to inject into your stories? And, and what's your research process like? I have found that as I read history, because I'm one of those geeks who read history, even when I'm not teaching it, <laughs> just for fun, you know? <laughs> So I, you know, obviously I love this stuff and I'm always consuming and learning something new. There's so much out there. And I always come across something that is just like, you know, Elizabeth Bathory's story, fascinating moments or questions, you know, where I wonder what they were thinking and why. And really what, like for, for Ferris Flesh, the first thing I thought really looking to Elizabeth Bathory is she had a bunch of people who helped her. You know, she wasn't doing that all by herself. She had people who fetched girls for her, knowing that they were going to get tortured and mutilated and die. So why? You know, what motivated to do that? So, I mean, obviously history can't answer those things. So I think it, something in me, may, you know, wants to just find out that answer by exploring things. So I think history presents opportunities oftentimes and inspires. At that point, you know, I start doing more research, but there is a certain point I have learned. I have to make the historian side of me hush a little bit because sometimes <laughs> it will not, the story won't get done because I'll be like, oh, I need to cite this. <laughs> and I'm like, no, this is, not, <laughs> this is not an academic paper, dang it. So I caught myself a couple times with Ferris Flesh that I was like, I am researching literally for hours what the heck kind of latch I should, you know, describe on this door. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What existed in 16th, 17th century <laughs> Hungary? And, you know, that's very hard to find. And I found, I realized I just wasted a whole bunch of hours. No one cares. And they just need the story. <laughs> so I'm gonna let it, I had to let it go. I think when, when those of us who are fans of history, we get, it's very easy to, for us to be interested in those details, but we have to understand that right. our readers 
will not be. And yes, I have literally done the same thing about something similar about <laughs> doors. <laughs> and it's like, why am I doing this? Oh, gosh. You're like, I have to make it just right. But, you know, you yeah. just, yeah, sometimes you make yourself, that side of yourself, hush. <laughs> yep. <laughs> This is why I, I try to stay away from historical fiction or anything <laughs> that like really needs details like that. Mm-hmm. I like fantasy so I can make things up, but I'm just afraid <laughs> of going down those those research holes, even though I do I do love history. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And then I mean I love fantasy for the escapism as well. And and mm-hmm. I think I do love reading historical fictions, but you know, there's always two parts of that. It's either like that didn't happen. So I'm that I'm that person. <laughs> or they didn't have those latches and whatever. <laughs> or you're like, oh my God, how did they get all these details in there? And you're totally just intimidated. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So you've got this other novel that you finished before. Is that something that you're planning on working on more? Do you have short stories going? What are you what have you been working on in the in the pandemic times, since it can be tough on a creative mind. Oh, oh, wow. I have been just happy when I have gotten a chance to sit down a little bit. My writing time has gotten pretty limited recently. So hopefully that'll <laughs> get better soon. But I have several short stories. One is coming out with Sonorious Silence with Pavor Press. Cool. I have a novella I'm trying to find a home for, so we'll find out what's going on with that. And I've been working on my thesis, dark fantasy slash possible horror <laughs> novel at the same time. So I'm not exactly sure. It's terrible. I don't actually know when the release is going to be, but the HWA's poetry volume is coming out and I got to be a one of the authors for that. So that was really exciting too. So I actually got some poetry. Ooh. And if you, you know, if you're interested in Ferris Flesh, and I want to say, take a look at that poem because it, I wrote it at a time that I was editing Ferris Flesh. So it has a lot of the same themes and it's got a lot of the same ideas. So. Ooh, cool. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. We'll, we'll check that out for sure. Yeah. And so, again, since this is a hard period to be creative, are there things that you've been consuming, reading, watching, listening to in particular over the past like spring and summer and early fall here? Stuff that you've been comforted by maybe. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Well, definitely a departure from horror. I've been reading and catching up because I have a huge stack of comics that I was way behind on and I'm a big Marvel fan. So mm-hmm. my favorite is Captain Marvel. So I've been catching up on my Captain Marvel and it's great because in the end, Captain Marvel does win and right wins. <laughs> so yeah. it gives me some hope. <laughs> so it's a great place to escape and to kind of refill a little bit refill your well before you get back to writing for sure i've read a few captain marvel comic books they're like all comics they're somewhat hard to get into because they're different runs started by different at different time periods by different people so do you have one book or series that you would recommend to people well i would say right now the current captain marvel I would recommend it. Uh, Kelly Thompson is, is doing the writing for it now. And she's done a really great job. She stays true to it. Captain Marvel, you know, has that kind of edge of being tortured in some ways, but she's also kind of lighthearted and she's not cynical. She's hopeful still. So mm-hmm. if you get into Captain Marvel, I think it's, this is a great time to do it. You'll get some really great writing, some really cool stories uh, with kind of a, a really great, 
capture of Captain Marvel's uh, personality. Cool, cool. You might have read this already, but you did say you're more into Marvel and this is a DC thing. But there's a DC series called DC's Bombshells. Have you heard of it? I have not. Okay. It's an alternate history set in World War II, but it basically features all of the female characters of DC. Ooh. So all those superheroes. I really loved loved it. It hits some of those points that you're talking about. It's it's hopeful and it's very, you know, there are terrible things going on in the world, but we're going to do our best to stand up against them. So you might you might find it interesting. I might check it out. You know, my daughter probably would really love that. She's a big fan of DC, so cool. You know, I didn't disown her, but <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I was very happy that that is something that she found some inspiration in. So, and she's she's eight, so it's pretty important, I think, for girls her age. So, yeah, yeah that sounds interesting, especially from the all female cast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, if your daughter likes DC and she wants something else that's really empowering and hopeful, there was this was from maybe as long ago as ten years, but Supergirl had a run called Supergirl's Adventures in the eighth grade, and it is precious and adorable and so <laughs> feminist. And also, it is written for slightly younger readers, and the art is adorable. And so I really recommend that. Okay, I'll look that up. She would love that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> yeah, it's so cute. Okay, well, do we have any other questions or things you want to leave us with about your book? There's right now, as of this recording, it's the special edition is available for pre-order. But after that, it'll be a standard edition, which is coming out in December. If you do get a chance to get a hold of a special edition, though, I, I recommend it. There's some fantastic art by Nick Day on the inside. Hmm. And the cover is done by Don Noble. And so it's a special cover and special interior art that you won't get in the standard edition. But standard edition is sharp, and I'm excited for everyone to see that one as well. So just I hope you enjoy and uh, hope you like doing a little bit deeper digging as well when you read. Awesome. Who's the who's the publisher of this? A Rooster Republic via their Strange House books. Okay, cool. Great. And do you want to tell people where they can find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at Garnet on Winter, or you can go to my website and find me at GarnetOnWinter.com. And from my website, you can get links. I, I pretty much I try to keep an update on my blog. Not really regularly, but timely enough. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we both understand that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was this was great and I'm looking forward to the book. Looking forward to learning more about Elizabeth Bathory and horror in general. So I'm very excited. I will remember to read only during the day. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. This has been great and um it's great talking to you guys again. Yeah, you too. Yeah, you too. Thank you again to KP for joining us. And next week, we're talking to philanthropist and Lost fan, Joe Garfine, about her favorite show, as well as some other fun pop culture topics. I'm really excited about that. That is one of my favorite shows, too. So looking forward to it. Our theme music is by Joseph McDade. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Gessner. And you can find me on Twitter at KW Taylor Writer. And you can find both of us together on Twitter at Pause Pop Podcast. If you'd like to email us, you can do that at positivelypopculture at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, stay healthy and safe, and join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop.